Well, friends, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. But Acts chapter 8 is where we will begin. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Is Jesus Christ in control right now? Is Jesus Christ in control right now? Now, if you've ever been to Sunday school or you have any familiarity with the Bible or church world, you might be tempted to think, well, I know that the answer is supposed to be yes. Jesus Christ is in control right now. I know that I'm supposed to say yes when I'm asked that question. Yes, Jesus Christ is in control. But it doesn't always feel that way, does it? It doesn't always feel like Jesus is in control. When I asked that question of myself Monday as I was preparing this sermon, I answered that question one way. And as I asked it again Friday, as I wrapped up sermon prep, it was like I was asking a whole different question. It's not that my answer had changed, but how I answered the question had changed. Between Monday and Friday, our family watched three very close friends of ours go through three very difficult situations. So I started off the week asking, is Jesus Christ in control? Yes, absolutely. And I ended the week asking, is Jesus Christ in control? And my answer was still the same, but how I answered was a little bit different. Sometimes we answer that question with a solid yes, as though we had steel in our spine. Other times we answer that question still with a yes, but with tears in our eyes. When Jesus Christ died, many of his followers wrestled with that same question. Is Jesus still in control? The king of the kingdom had died. They thought the kingdom was done. Now they were strengthened when they saw the resurrected Christ and they said, okay, maybe we have hope. But then the resurrected Christ left them in his ascension. He ascended into heaven. And once again, they thought, well, what's going to happen to the kingdom now? Now that our king is gone, what's going to happen to the kingdom when the king is absent? Is Jesus Christ still in control? It's a question we ask today. It's a question the early church asked in their day. Luke wrote the book of Acts in part to help us answer that question. Is Jesus Christ still in control? Look at how Luke opens the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Luke opens up the book of Acts, the story of the early church, teaching about how Jesus taught the apostles about the kingdom of God. That's how he opens the book of Acts. Look at how he closes the book of Acts. Acts 28, verses 30 to 31, last verses in the book. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. So Luke opens the book of Acts with Jesus teaching about the kingdom. Jesus is saying the kingdom is still sure and certain. He closes the book of Acts with Paul, though in prison, teaching about the kingdom, saying that the kingdom is still sure and certain. 
Luke wanted his readers, and he wants you to know that the kingdom of God is sure and certain, that Jesus Christ is still in control, that he's still in charge of the kingdom. He's still the mediator of the kingdom. He's still administering the saving promises and carrying out God's saving plan. Luke wants you to know in the book of Acts that Jesus Christ is still reigning. Some of your Bibles may begin uh, the book of Acts. They, it may give it the, 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 the title, my Bible does this, the Acts of the Apostles. Luke, the author, would agree, but he would clarify. Luke would say, well, yes, the, the apostles are very much involved in Acts. I mean, Peter was a, a major player, and so was Paul, and so was James, and so was John. They, they were all major players, but none of them are the main character of the book of Acts. Luke would lean across the table if he were sitting down with you and say, none of the apostles are the hero of Acts. Jesus is the hero of Acts. So Luke would probably grab a number two pencil and write in the margin of your Bible, the acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles. Jesus is the hero of the book of Acts. Jesus is the hero as he keeps his promise to build his church. So let me just ask you right now, as you look at the state of the church in the world, as you look at the state of your own soul, as you look at the state of things around you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is still in control? This morning, I want to talk to you about how Jesus Christ is still in control, how he's still reigning even right now. So we look at Acts chapter 7, we see Stephen, the first martyr, uh, killed for his faith in Jesus. And at the end of his life, he lifted his gaze to heaven and he saw Jesus Christ standing. In other words, in the moment of his martyrdom, Stephen was reminded that Jesus Christ was still in control of the kingdom. And in the moment of your weariness, in the moment of your sorrow, in the moment when you're tempted to throw in the towel and say, maybe the whole Christian thing isn't worth it, remember that Jesus Christ is still in control. I want to talk to you this morning about how Jesus Christ reigns right now, specifically how Jesus Christ reigns in the salvation or the conversion of sinners. My aim is to give you assurance that Jesus Christ is in control. I want you to see the same Jesus who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and be, uh, behold, I will be with you always to the ends of the earth. I want you to know that that same Jesus is still in control. I want you to know that the same Jesus who said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, is just as much in control today as he was on the day in which he uttered those words in Caesarea Philippi. I want you to know that the Jesus Jesus who said, I hold you in my hands and no one can snatch you out is still very much in control. I want you to have assurance, but I don't want to merely give you mental assurance. I want to give you fortitude for the task 
that you might obey him. Remember, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. It does you no good to believe that Jesus Christ has all authority if you do not intend to obey him in his mission of making disciples. It does us no good to say, oh, yes, 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 yes. I believe in Jesus. I just have no intention of obeying him, right? You can feel the, the irony there. No, we're meant not merely to have assurance, but to, but to lean in, to have fortitude for the task. As you do the work of evangelism, as you reach out to that coworker and ask, hey, where are you at on your spiritual journey? As you sit down with that classmate, you can see the calendar ticking, right? You've only got a couple of weeks left in the school year. As you sit down with that classmate that you know the Lord has been tapping you on the shoulder for the last four years saying, I want to use you to get to them. I want to use you to get to them. I want to use you. And you finally say, hey, I've been wondering, where are you at on your spiritual journey? As you go to that coworker, that family member, and you say, hey, would you have any interest in reading the Bible with me over the summer and, and talking about it? I want you to have fortitude for the task. As we pursue that goal of breaking 100, the 100 barrier, we want to do so out of obedience to Jesus because we want to see how Jesus Christ reigns in the salvation, the conversion of sinners. J.D. Greer writes this, many adult Christians can't remember when a single adult convert one truly brought out of darkness into light came to Jesus in their church. And they certainly can't remember one whose story they were personally a part of. Study after study shows that most Christians have never even shared their faith. Most studies indicating that somewhere around 90% of evangelicals have never shared their faith with anyone outside their family, which kind of begs the question where we get off calling ourselves evangelicals. He makes the point, only 20% of churches in the U.S. are growing and only 1% are growing by reaching lost people. So Catalyst, what about us? Where are we going to fall in those statistics? Let's be obedient to the mission of Jesus who said, I came to seek and to save the lost Luke in the book of Acts wants us to know that Jesus Christ is reigning over his kingdom, bringing sinners in, and he's sending saved sinners out to be a part of that great mission. So let me just ask you a couple of questions before we jump into our text. Do you believe that Jesus Christ saves sinners? And if you do, do you want him to use you for that great purpose? Some of you have family members or friends or coworkers or neighbors that you long to see Jesus save. Do you long for him to use you in that great purpose? And so who is it that you know that Jesus might use you to reach? Well, let's turn our attention to Acts chapter eight. And we're gonna look at the first few verses in Acts chapter eight and the first few verses in Acts chapter nine, which introduce us to a man named Saul. I'm gonna read the passages and then we're gonna look at two threads that are woven throughout Saul's story. Acts chapter eight begins this way. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. 
And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. We pick up on Saul's story in Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which was kind of how they called Christianity, the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless Hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Two threads that I want you to see woven throughout Saul's story. Number one is the opposition of Saul. I want you to see the depth of Saul's opposition. We see here a progression of Saul's opposition. He's shown to oppose Stephen, and then he's shown to oppose the church, and then Christianity, and then Christ himself. Acts chapter 8 begins affirming or telling Saul's role in Stephen's death. We're told in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen's opponents cast him outside the city, and they stoned him to death, and as they did, they laid their jackets at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then in Acts chapter 8, Luke says Saul approved of Stephen's execution. So in case you're wondering what type of person Saul is, these are your opening clues. He guarded the jackets of Stephen's killers and he approved of his execution. Some scholars believe that when they laid their jackets down at uh, Saul's feet, it was because Saul was the one in charge. He was the one that had said, execute him. While Saul's teacher, Gamaliel, had taught that it would have been wise to just stay away from the Christians, just leave them alone, see what God did with them, Saul saw that no such compromise was logically possible. If the Jewish order, which Saul held so dearly to, was going to be preserved, this new faith must be stamped out. Saul was steeped in the Jewish tradition. He believed this was the way to worship God. This was the way to uh, be right with God. And anyone who said else otherwise was dead wrong. And so, even to the point of martyrdom, he would kill Christians. Years later, again in Jerusalem, Paul would reflect on this event as he gave his testimony. He explained, when the blood of Stephen, God's witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Now imagine that scene for just a moment. Saul, a young, promising leader in the Jewish movement, in the position of approving the murder of Stephen. 
There is Saul standing with the coats at his feet, watching with his eyes as they picked up the stones, affirming with his head and his posture and everything he had, yes, this is right and this is good. This man should be put to death. Now imagine it from heaven's point of view. Heaven hears the faithful and bold witness of Stephen. They see the fury of his opponents. They watch as they drag him outside the city, just like they did Jesus. They see the stones in their hands. They watch Saul approve the execution. But heaven knows what Saul doesn't. That in just a matter of time, Saul would come to believe in the gospel that he now hears. He would become an advocate of the gospel he now opposes. Heaven knew what Saul didn't. That one day, Saul would become a believer. He would become a Christian. The rest of the Bible, we we, uh, see Saul as referred to as Paul. That's not because Jesus said, I'm going to change your name. It's because his Jewish name was Saul. But most of his Christian ministry after he gets saved was spent in a Greek context. So he went by his Greek name, Paul. Same person, Hebrew context known as Saul, Greek context known as Paul. But heaven knew as they watched Saul oversee the death of Stephen, heaven knew what Saul didn't. Not only was Saul opposed to Stephen, he was opposed to the church. Luke records a great persecution arose against the church. This is the first use of the noun persecution in Acts. But Luke has already made it clear that suffering was normative for followers of Jesus in the book of Acts. Commentator James Montgomery Boyce explains, here for the first time we find persecution not only of the leaders, but also of the membership at large. In fact, he points out that Luke points out that Saul was ravaging the church. In contrast to the devout men who buried Stephen and wept over him, Saul capitalized on the moment he ravaged the church. That word ravage is also translated destroy. He was brutal and sadistic. Do you see the depth of his opposition to Christianity? This is no mere inconvenience to religious liberty. This is the threat of death to all who followed Jesus. Saul began to destroy the church. The tense of that verb there is imperfect, meaning that he ravaged it and he kept on ravaging it. He was making trouble and he was going to keep on making trouble until God stopped him. Tony Morita explains, Only the spilling of more blood would satisfy Saul's obsessive hatred of Christians. He wanted to liquidate every vestige of Christianity. Do you see the depth of Saul's opposition to Christ? Now, we know the end of the story. We know that Jesus is going to save Saul, that he's going to become arguably the world's most effective missionary. But right now, he's a persecutor. In the New Testament, much is made. Much is made of Saul the persecutor. The majority of the references written by the apostle himself. He knew who he was. Do you? Do you understand the depth of your sin against God? Do you understand the infinite offense of your sin? You didn't just make a little white lie. You rebelled against the God of truth. You didn't just thumb through some images that you know you shouldn't look at on your phone. You twisted an image bearer of God into an object of your pleasure. C.S. Lewis explains, 
fallen sinful man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Friends, do you understand your opposition outside of Christ? Do you see the depth of Saul's opposition In Acts 9, Paul writes, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul was violently opposed to what they called the way. This was a common phrase used to describe Christianity. Some people believe that it came from when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they said, okay, we're going to be violently opposed to the way. And so Saul organized official persecution programs. Tony Morita explains the arrest warrants he received from the high priest authorizing him to arrest believers fill him with the hope that others will soon face a fate similar to Stephen's. Do you see it? Saul was so pleased by what happened to Stephen that he said, we need to have more of this. And so he organized a political official persecution program to ensure that more Christians would meet the fate that Stephen met. This is the depth of Saul's opposition to Christianity. Now think about it. Where did this come from? What would Saul have thought about Christianity? He would have been convinced that it was evil and deceptive. Not only would Paul have considered Christianity wrong, he would have considered it deceptive. This is because it made such great claims. It claimed not only that Jesus was the son of God, but that he also had proved this by his resurrection from the dead. If Christianity was wrong as Paul believed it was, then Jesus had not risen from the dead and was not God. Those who were going about saying that he had been raised from the dead and therefore was God were obviously and consciously trying to deceive the Jewish community. F.F. Bruce paraphrases Paul's line of thinking. These people, he thought, were not merely misguided enthusiasts whose sincere embracing of error called for patient enlightenment. They were deliberate imposters, proclaiming that God had raised from the tomb to be Lord and Messiah, a man whose manner of death was sufficient to show that the divine curse rested on him. Saul would have said, you you can't say Jesus is God. He's cursed by God. The Old Testament makes that clear, Saul would have said. You can't embrace Christianity. It's not only wrong, it's deceptive. You may have some coworkers or family members or neighbors that think Christianity is foolish, that it's at best a fairy tale for those that are afraid of the dark. One Christian theologian was met with that claim. A scholar said, I don't believe in Christianity because it's just a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the dark. He said to this atheist opponent, he said, well, I believe that atheism is just a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the light. And they had a dialogue. Some of you might have family members or friends that think Christianity is foolish. Some of you might have coworkers or friends or family members who, like Saul, think that it's not just foolish, but that it is wrong, that it is, that it is evil, just like Saul. But Saul was, was not only proven to be opposed to Christianity, but to Christ himself. 
As he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? When he uses that word Lord, it's not a recognition that Jesus is Lord. It's just a sign of respect. And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? That is the question which every opponent of Christianity will have to ultimately answer. Saul was an opponent of Christ. He would write of himself years later as he reflected on who he was before Christ. I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Friends, do you see the depth of Saul's opposition to Christ? And seeing the depth of Saul's opposition, we might be tempted to think there's no way Jesus Christ is reigning in this situation. There's no way Jesus is in control. But Luke weaves in another thread, and that is the strength of Saul's savior. We see the strength of Saul's savior as he identified with the persecution, persecuted church. Why are you persecuting me, he asked Saul. Jesus would say to his disciples, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me. Persecution is one stream with many currents and speeds and expressions, but the stream is opposition to Christ. So when you read about Christians being persecuted, or when you experience persecution yourself, don't get caught up in debating where on the scale of persecution it falls. Instead, know that Christ identifies with the persecuted church. Not only that, but Jesus uses persecution for his purposes. The trouble that Saul and the others were making was ineffective in the end. Luke draws a particular attention to the inability of those opposed to believers to stop the progress of the word. Couple of examples. In Acts chapter four, verse four, Peter and John are placed in jail. In the very next verse, Luke writes, but many who heard the message or the word believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Chapter 4, verse 4, they're in jail. Chapter 4, verse 5, the word is thriving. In chapter 5, the same thing happens. Verse 18, all the apostles are placed in jail. Once again, Luke begins the very next verse with but. In this instance, he states, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Why did he bring them out? Verse 20, so that the apostles could tell the people the full message of the new life. So again, verse 18 of chapter five, they are all in jail. Luke's trying to make a point. The jail can't stop the, the, the word from thriving. Very next verse, so an angel of the Lord opens the jail, uh, jail gates so that they might go and proclaim the full message. So again here in Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, Saul is shown to be destroying the church and going from house to house, dragging off men and women and putting them in prison. In the very next verse, Luke states, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. No amount of persecution can stop God's purposes. It's not possible. So I'm not completely undone when as a Christian, I feel like the clouds of persecution are rolling in because the clouds of persecution are always subservient to the greater purpose and plan of God. So whatever persecution we experience in our lifetime, we can know that the plan and the purpose of God is stronger still. 
So the believers were scattered. There are different words for scattered in Greek. One means dispersed so that the item is gone from that point on, like scattering a person's ashes ashes on the ocean's wave. That is not the word used here in verses 1 and 4. The word used here means scattered in order to be planted. It's what God did with Israel, scattering the Jews throughout the world because of their sin, brought them back and planted them in their land. The disciples were scattered as a result of the persecution, but all the leaders did by scattering the disciples was to plant them in the places to which they had been scattered, for there they preached the word. Is that true of you? Wherever you find yourself, whether scattered by work or family, or education, or some other means, have you put down roots and borne fruit for Jesus Christ? That is what these early Christians did. It's because of this activity that even the bad things that happened to them served to advance the cause of Christ. They were scattered, so they planted themselves and made the gospel bear fruit. One of the things about this area is that it tends to be very transient, especially in regards to the military community. One in four people in Hampton Roads is associated with the military. And we thank God for our servicemen and women. And we recognize that often the Lord will bring us very close friends for a very short season. And they're here for a while and we thank God for that and we know that the clock is always ticking. But what I have found is that some of those military men and women that are the most fruitful for Jesus recognize that they're only here for a season. And that's not an excuse not to put down roots and get to work. It's an excuse and a reason to get to work. You're only here for a season. So put down roots, bear fruit for Jesus Christ wherever you're at. We see that Saul goes on and he pursues north. Uh, Saul was concerned that the religion called the way was spreading. It had started in Jerusalem and he was doing everything he could to stamp it out there. But he heard rumors that the faith was taking root in Damascus, a Gentile city in Syria. In spite of all of Saul's persecution efforts, the gospel had traveled 120 miles to the north. But there's an irony here. In the chapter immediately before this, we have been told about Philip and the Ethiopian and how the gospel was spreading to the south. Saul was concerned that the gospel was spreading north. But while he was on his way north, God picked up Philip from Samaria and leapfrogged him over Saul, sending him down the Gaza road in the direction of Ethiopia. Saul was trying to stamp out Christianity in one direction. God was advancing it rapidly in the other. Again, Luke is weaving this thread to remind us no amount of persecution can stop God's purposes. And when persecution goes north, God's going to move the gospel south. When persecution goes east to west, God's going to advance the gospel west to east. He is not threatened. Finally, we see the strength of Saul's Savior in the simple fact that Jesus Christ saves sinners just like Saul and just like you. As vigorously as Saul hated Christ, even more so did Christ love Saul. We should be greatly encouraged by the fact that God saved Saul. 
God turned this great persecutor of the early Christians into the first great missionary. He took the man who had been doing most to harm the church and turned him into the man who did the most to build it up. If God could do that with Saul, God can do the same thing today. So if you have a son or daughter whom you are worried about, a child who is off somewhere not serving the Lord or a husband who is unconverted, keep praying for them. God can and frequently does do something remarkable. If you have a coworker or a family member or a classmate that is far from the Lord and you feel the Lord's prompting, I wanna use you to reach them, keep praying. Keep leaning into the relationship. Keep asking them the questions. God can and frequently does do something remarkable. Saul's story proves it. Jesus Christ was reigning in the conversion of Saul. You just might see him reigning in the conversion of that son or daughter, that classmate or team member. And we should remember that Jesus Christ has saved us. If you are a Christian, your conversion is no less miraculous than Saul's. Your sin was no less damning and your saving is no less great. So friends, I wanna ask you two questions. Two questions as we conclude. Number one, are you pleading with Jesus to save people you know? Are you working with them to be the savior of the people in your life? You might have family members or friends, coworkers or neighbors. Are you trusting him for the salvation of others? And are you trusting him for your own salvation? Friends, Jesus Christ reigns over the affairs of the world. He reigns over the affections of the heart. Let's get to work and be obedient in the great task of making disciples of the nations and our neighbors. I want you to grab the communion cups that are uh, in the pews in front of you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know you're among friends. I'm glad you're here. Everything in this service is for you, but the Bible says that this meal is not for non-Christians. It's dangerous, the Bible says it's even deadly to participate in the meal in an unworthy manner. As Luke writes, or uh, as, as uh, Paul writes that, excuse me, he, he doesn't mean that we have to clean up our acts in order that we earn our way to the table. That's not possible. But rather he means we must believe what the cup and the juice proclaim, what the, what the bread and the juice proclaim, that Christ's body was broken for us that his blood was poured out for us, that Christ crucified is our only hope of heaven. Friends, if that is you, then the meal is wide open. God has given the, this meal as a means of encouraging our faith to remember that our crucified, buried, and risen king is still reigning over the kingdom. He's still advancing the gospel in and through us. So if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, the table is wide open and I encourage you to feast on Christ through this meal. So if you're a Christian, let me encourage you, go ahead and peel that top layer.